From high school biology class to treating the most complex diseases, evolution lies at the core of our existence. Whether we're trying to figure out world conflict, medical breakthroughs, or even what might happen if we encounter alien beings, evolution provides the foundation. Today, with the world moving so rapidly, with technology so much a part of shaping that world, it seems more important than ever that we, especially young people, understand our roots, where we came from, and what it might mean for our future. Few do this better than my guest, Jared Diamond. Jared Diamond is a professor of geography at UCLA. He's published over 200 articles. He's the author of several books, including Guns, Germs, and Steel, which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. He's also the author of the international bestseller Collapse and the World Until Yesterday. It is my pleasure to welcome Jared Diamond back to this program to talk about the third chimpanzee for young people. Jared Diamond, thanks so much for joining us. And it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Great to have you here. Before we talk about the young person's version of of the third chimpanzee, I want to talk a little bit about how much has changed in the world, how much more we know between 1991, when you had originally published this, and today. We've learned new things, of course, because science keeps going, showing that some things that we used to believe weren't quite right and adding lots of details, reinforcing reinforcing other things. Since I published The Third Chimpanzee in 1991 about human evolution and how we came to be different from chimpanzees, probably the most interesting discovery has been about hybridization with Neanderthals. Neanderthals are those humans considered primitive that used to occupy Europe and got replaced rather quickly by our species Homo sapiens. When I wrote Thurn Chimpanzee in 1991, I said we didn't know whether Neanderthals and modern sapiens had sex or not. And now we know that they did infrequently and apparently reluctantly have sex to the point where 2 or 3% of your genes and my genes and the genes of most of our listeners are Neanderthal genes left over from hybridization about 30,000 or 40,000 years ago. That's perhaps the most interesting new discovery. And the ability to understand DNA the way we have and to sequence DNA, what has that helped us understand? That's like being able to read thousands of books quickly as opposed to being able to read one book slowly upside down. (laughs) DNA lets one gather a lot more genetic information and the discovery about the Neanderthals that I just reported, that I just told you about, um, was based on analysis of our DNA and Neanderthal DNA. Ten years ago, we didn't even have the techniques for extracting DNA for creatures that went extinct 30 or 40,000 years ago. Now, with a lot of effort and new techniques, it's possible to extract Neanderthal DNA, sequence it, carefully compare it with our own DNA, and see how much of their DNA is in us. So that's an example of what's been made possible by new techniques. We also know that with respect to the chimpanzees, the the fact that there's really only 2% difference in DNA between us and the chimpanzees that you talk about. That's pretty startling. When that came out in the 1980s, that was a bombshell, which in fact gave the title to the first of my books, The Third Chimpanzee. Um, 
you and I are the third chimpanzee. The reason for that is that we knew that there are two species of chimpanzees in Africa, the so-called common chimpanzee, which is widely known, and then the restricted um, so-called pygmy chimp or bonobo, which is confined to Zaire. But then genetic studies comparing the DNA of humans and chimps started out with the expectation that if, if any scientist had been asked in the 1970s, so how similar are the DNA of humans and chimps, people would have guessed maybe 60%, 70% tops. And so it was a real bombshell when it turned out that we and they share 98% of our genes. And so that 2% difference explains why you and I are now talking in the English language and our close relatives, the chimps, are locked up in the zoos instead of the chimps um, being here manipulating technology and we being locked up in zoos. It's interesting how that 2% really results in language and art and science and all the, these things that really make us human in so many respects. That's right. That's one of the biggest and most obviously exciting questions of modern science. Whenever I talk about human relations or my book, The Third Chimpanzee, to high school and middle school classes, that's one of the things that most grabs them, and in fact, most grabs me and my adult readers. The fact that this, this tiny difference, somewhere is buried in the 2%, is the explanation for all the interesting differences. The fact that we make art, the chimpanzees don't. Um, the fact that we have language with grammar, they don't. The fact that we have writing, the fact that we have powerful technology and lock them up in cages instead of they locking us up in cages. The fact that we, at least our women, undergo menopause and female chimps don't undergo menopause. All of those differences are packed into that 2% difference of genes. And yet, the, I guess it's one of the ironies in this is that in understanding science and in all the wonderful things that come from that 2%, that there's still people out there arguing about evolution. That's true. Um, there, is, there, is, there are a few people arguing about whether the Earth is round or flat. <laughs> um, there's, le there's less interest in that nowadays. Ser seriously, for a long time, it was believed that the Earth was flat because you look out and, yes, <laughs> the Earth sure is flat. And there are people who question whether matter really is divided into atoms, or, although, again, that's not very controversial because the Bible doesn't have much to say about um, uh, nuclei, electrons, positrons, and division into atoms. But the Bible does have definite things to say about the origin of the Earth and the origin of humans. Last night I was talking with someone who's religious and said, for heaven's sakes, um, Jared, those Bible stories, don't trash them. They're to be taken as myths, they're metaphors, don't take them seriously. But the unfortunate fact is that 60 or 70% of Americans do take them seriously and don't take them as beautiful stories and myths. One of the other things that you talk about, and this really relates to young people, your attitudes towards young people and concerns about the future, is the degree to which this kind of evolutionary change and technology and all the wonderful things that we're able to do results in the potential for such environmental degradation? One could say more generally, um, yes, um, new information results in the potential for environmental degradation, but throughout human history, knowledge has meant power, and power means power for, being, for doing good or doing bad. Nobody has ever figured out a way 
to create new power that can't do harm. When about 800,000 years ago, some primitive human figured out how to make a spear. Boy, that was wonderful. You can now spear elephants. But they didn't figure out how to make a spear that could not be turned against other humans. And then more recently, in the 1930s and 1940s, when physicists um, um, discovered atom splitting and the potential for nuclear power. Boy, that seemed wonderful because that was going to solve our energy needs, but nobody figured out how to avoid turning nuclear energy also into atomic bombs. So it's not surprising uh, that today the new advances we've got are just another in the long line of power being morally neutral, being able to do either good things or horrible things. Except the difference, I suppose, is the scope of that horror, the scope of that potential danger. That's true. The scope of, scope of everything now, scope of doing good, scope of doing bad, is much greater than in the past because our, our modern power is more powerful. Okay, so 800,000 years ago, someone invents a spear, and what power does that give? Well, it lets you kill the elephant next door. It doesn't let you do anything um, to the savannas 2,000 miles away. Now, when you invent something, um, it may be a device where you push a button on a cell phone and it sends a missile crashing into a house about 2,000 miles away. So power has gotten more powerful. Talk a little bit about the reason for this volume being done as a volume for young people, as, as this is. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story that's, that surprised me. When my first book, the Third Chimpanzee, was published in 1991. And then when my later books, like Guns, Germs, Seal, Collapse, were published, the fact is they're about really interesting, important, but complicated matters, which I described as clearly as possible. And I assumed that they would be read by adults, didn't occur to me that they would be read in schools. And therefore, it was a surprise to me when I discovered that coming to my talks, there would be high school classes that were really interested in the material and asked questions, wanted to have photographs taken, and, and were really into the stuff. Then the, the wake-up call for me came when my own sons were in middle school. They are, I guess, about 10 years old. One day they came home from school really angry at me, and I didn't know that I had done anything horrible that day, so I said, <laughs> what's the matter? And they said, Daddy, your book has been assigned to our class and we haven't read it yet, but we already know it's a bad book, and you've been invited to talk to our class, and we're going to be so embarrassed um, that our friends are going to see what terrible, boring things you do. Well, yes, I came into the class. My boys were just red with embarrassment, but when they saw that their classmates really got interested in these big questions of science and asked me questions and smiled, my boys started rotating around and got less red and got more interested and engaged and sat up, and then became strong defenders rather than disgusted with my books. So that was an eye-opener to me that young people are interested in this material. But the fact is that young people can profit from a simpler version in which the type is laid out more neatly and there isn't so much crammed into a page, and in which out of 19 chapters there are not two chapters on sex as there are in the adult version. Two chapters on sex would suffice to get the third chimpanzee banned out of Texas schools. And so the new version <laughs> for young people drops the, the chapters on sex, and it goes to more efforts to explain things, and 
whereas I love to give 37 examples, um, the, new, the new version for young people reduces the 37 examples to two, two examples, so it's a more user-friendly edition. And as you go around talking to young people and, and they pick up this book, talk a little bit about what you find they most spark to. What gets them excited today? There isn't a, that's a great question, and the, the wonderful answer is there isn't any just one thing that gets them excited today. There's so much that gets them excited today. They are excited about human history. They're excited about where humans came from and what happened to Neanderthals. They're excited about the question, why is it that Europeans came to North America instead of Native Americans or Aboriginal Australians coming to Europe? They're excited and concerned about the question, what's going to happen to the world 50 years from now, and what can we do to avoid the world getting messed up and ending up back in the Stone Age? In short, there's so much in the world that's exciting that the young people are excited by all of it. And of course, adults are excited by lots of these things too, except that when you get into your 20s and 30s and need to get a job, um, you have to start focusing on your job and set aside your interest in everything else in order, as in my case, to earn a living by studying the gallbladder, which I did until I got decided to start writing books for the broad public. Talk a little bit about that, your own history, that originally you were studying the gallbladder, and it certainly expanded far beyond that. That's right. I did my Ph.D. thesis on sodium transport in the gallbladder. Now, the gallbladder is a small organ. If you have pain in your gallbladder, it needs to be removed. It's of some significance. Um, but it's not going to change the future of the world. Nevertheless, I was very good at gallbladder research, and, and the world's four other gallbladder researchers read my papers with much interest. Um, but I couldn't say that it was going to shake up the world. It sufficed, though, for UCLA Medical School to hire me to teach medical students who have to know not just about the gallbladder, but about the intestine, kidney, stomach, and other organs. And so for several decades, I did my gallbladder research and lectured to medical students and had a happy career until in 1987 my twin sons were born, and I started to think about what is the world going to be like after I'm dead. But while my sons are at the peak of their lives, like in 2050, at present, the predictions are that by the year 2050, most of the tropical rainforests will be destroyed and the world will be two degrees or four degrees or who knows how many degrees hotter. I'll be dead by then, and so I couldn't care about the world of 2050 until my sons were born. And then I woke up and realized, Jared, enough of gallbladders. You have to start doing something to ensure that your kids end up in a world worth living in instead of in a trashed world. And that was why I started writing books on interesting, important questions for the broad public. One of the things that always fascinated you is your interest in and study of birds. Talk a little bit about that and its connection to some of the other things we've been talking about, Jared. One could say that interest in birds, to me, is the most natural thing, thing possible. When I was seven years old and looked out the window of my parents' bedroom, on the lawn were some birds, and I wanted to identify them, so I looked them up in a bird book, and turns out I misidentified them. But at any rate, that got me interested in birds. Lots of people get, get interested in birds when they're young, or they get, get interested in lizards, or they get into interest in plants and butterflies. And I carried on with my interest in birds, after I got my 
PhD in the gallbladder and was hired to teach gallbladders, um, I began to realize with horror that I was expected to do gallbladders for the rest of my life, and that felt constricting. So I developed a second career in birds, New Guinea birds, which I carried on, and I'm still pursuing it today. But to study birds, you cannot do manipulative experiments with test tubes in the laboratory like you can to study molecular biology and physiology. You have to find ways of studying birds by observing them and comparing them without killing them or removing them. But similarly, if you want to understand human societies, you cannot kill or remove or pick up and drop somewhere else human societies. You have to learn how to compare and observe basically the methods that we use to study birds. And so my background in ornithology was good training for my current interest in studying human societies. And has modern technology in any way aided in all of that? Absolutely. Modern technology has enabled us to discover things that in the past we would not have dreamed about. For example, um, if you want to know where did Native Americans come from, well, now there are techniques for extracting DNA from bones of Native Americans from 13,000 years ago, and you can see what are the relationships of the earliest Native Americans. Or you can dig up skeletons of mammoths, the giant elephants that used to be widespread in the U.S. until they went extinct, probably killed off by people. And there's talk now of actually trying to recreate a mammoth, bring a mammoth back to life by means of its um, DNA. Um, and still another example is that Native Americans, beginning about 2,500 years ago, had writing, best known as the writing of the Maya people of the Yucatan, Guatemala, and Mexico. And when I was growing up, we couldn't read Maya writing. And then people, including a 10-year-old schoolboy who was very good at remembering shapes of, of um, hieroglyphs, um, people figured out how to read Maya writing. And so now we can read about Maya kings, and we know their names, and we know the horrible things that they did to each other, and the good things and the beautiful things that they did. Those are examples of advances in my lifetime that have made science so exciting. One of the things you write about a lot is the, the mechanics of sexual selection, how we determine our mates, how it impacts human behavior. Talk a little bit about how modern attitudes towards men and women, between men and women, has impacted how you view these areas. Modern attitudes towards men and women are remarkably similar to ancient Greek attitudes towards men, men and women. All you have to do is look at the statue of Venus de Milo in, mm. in the Louvre, and you'll see that what looked beautiful 2,400 years ago today still looks um, very beautiful. Um, as for men and women and our listeners and, and my own experience in dating my dating my the person, the beautiful woman who became my wife, <laughs> when one walks into a room and there are dozens of people there and you scan the people, it's not that you have a checklist and you evaluate each person on the checklist, and after seven minutes, you figure out who in that room is probably going to be right for you. Instead, you come in, you glance around, and almost instantly, you see who appeals to you and who doesn't appeal to you, even if you can't explain the reasons why that person appeals to you. On thought, you may decide, I like tall people, I like short people, no, I like thin people, no, I don't like 
like heavy people. I like blondes. I can't stand redheads. You may be aware of that, but um, I certainly was not aware that I like women with wide-set eyes. And it took me a while to get used to my wife's narrow-set eyes. So that's stuff that has been true for thousands of years, but now psychologists are studying it. And psychologists tell us, well, the reason that you like that woman is because she's got a long middle finger and narrow set eyes, and she is you know, gets along well with you and you have things in common. But don't forget her middle finger and her distance between her eyes. And that all comes back to evolution as well. Yes, uh, it comes back to evolution because sexual, what's called sexual selection, that's to say what's involved in choosing our sex partners and our mates, is, of course, a key to evolution because who you mate with determines who is going to end up sharing your genes in your babies and hence what genes get passed on to the next generation. And so we, evolution is a fact. Evolution is the changes of, of characters and genes from generation to generation. The mechanisms of evolution are several, and there's some debate about them, because partly it's due to natural selection, that's to say improved survival, but partly it's due to sexual selection. Um, if, a, if, let's say, a man is really attractive to women, even if he doesn't have great genes and is not so good at spearing lions, um, if 79 of the women in the hunter-gatherer band want to mate with him because he's so attractive, even though he's not great at spearing lions, and only two of the women want to mate with the man who's the great lion hunter but is not terribly attractive, um, it's the sexually attractive man who's going to pass on more of his genes. That illustrates why sexual selection is of importance comparable to natural selection. Finally, talk a little bit about these internal superiority contests that have the profound consequences that they do. Competition in humans, competition in every animal species, competition in ants. Um, just look at ants. Um, sometimes it's not very nice when you look at ants because ants kill each other, ants from different colonies. Or if you're a bird watcher, look at competition between birds. Birds don't often kill each other, but right now in the spring, um, look at song sparrows singing, singing their hearts out, puffing themselves off, bluffing each other to drive each other off the territory and get a good territory. Um, competition is a matter of getting ahead so that you are the one who will spread your genes or your group is the one that will spread its genes and culture. Competition undoubtedly goes back four billion years and we humans compete. Often we compete nicely, for, um, that's to say non-destructively for jobs and occasionally we compete in very nasty ways by taking guns and atomic bombs and killing our competitors. Jared Diamond, the newest book is The Third Chimpanzee for Young People. It's just out from Seven Stories Press. Jared, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.